What a joy it is to be together as one body, isn't it? And I'm thankful that this is the first of our summer's single service Sunday sermon series in Psalms. That's right. I use all those S's like a real preacher. Um, And I'm thankful to preach this morning on the 27th Psalm, uh, addressing a frailty of the human disposition that's common to all mankind. And that frailty is commonly referred to as anxiety. Uh, I'd like to open this in prayer, and then we'll get right into the sermon. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the words of praise that you have put on our hearts to lift to you in gratitude. We pray that they were a sweet aroma to you, Lord, that they were pleasing to your ears, and that you were truly magnified and exalted in all hearts here this morning, Father. And Lord, I pray now as we come to this part where we bring to you words from your word. Lord, as I preach, Lord, I pray for wisdom and discernment and clarity of speech for me. And I pray for discernment in all that would hear in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, For all of you that know Kelly and I well, you're you're probably fully aware that uh, we've been on life's roller coaster over the last year and a half. Uh, And as it relates to Kelly, August of last year through April of this year in particular. Uh, In December of 21, as Kelly and I were kind of reflecting on the year behind us and looking to the year that would be ahead, Kelly looked at me and she said, 2022 is going to be a year of great joy, and it's going to be a year of great sorrow. You see, we had the excitement and expectation at that time of our first grandchild, uh, a little girl named Quinlan, who's a year old, and she's over in the nursery right now. And we also had the realistic expectation that the Lord would take Jenny, Kelly's sister, home after a multi-year battle with cancer. And this was on our hearts and minds. But little did we know that our joy would actually be increased even more with the marriage of our youngest son, Owen, at the end of 2022, but that also our sorrow would be increased with the unexpected passing of Kelly's stepfather in January of 22. And all this compounded with events leading up to the Lord calling Jenny home that literally brought my wife to a point of great personal crisis and our home great despair. And it was during this season of overwhelming anxiety and the miry clay of fear that this psalm, Psalm 27, brought hope as the Lord showed himself to Kelly in her trial and held her firm in his grasp. The World Economic Forum states that, quote, the early years of the 21st century have witnessed a worldwide epidemic of poor mental health and related illnesses. But while depression is the condition most will associate with mental health issues and the leading cause of disability worldwide, it is not the number one mental health concern people face. That unwanted accolade goes to anxiety, end quote. Per a a WHO report on COVID and its effects on mental health issues dated March 2nd, 2022, uh, they were looking at the effects of the lockdowns and COVID after one year from those occurring. The clinical estimates showed a 26% increase for anxiety in just one year after the shutdowns of 2020. Uh, Webster's defines anxiety as this, an apprehensive uneasiness or nervousness usually over an impending or anticipated ill, a state of being anxious. Medically, it's an abnormal and overwhelming sense of apprehension and fear, often marked by physical signs, such as tension, sweating, increased pulse rate, 
by doubt concerning the reality and nature of the threat, and by self-doubt about one's capacity to cope with it. Jocelyn Wallace states in a great biblical counseling booklet on anxiety and panic attacks the following, quote, when anxious thoughts get bigger and bigger, the possible negative results get more and more dangerous. Before long, you find yourself panicking because there are no solutions to all the potential dangers your mind has created. You see, God has so wonderfully created our minds and bodies, and He has linked them together. He has created us with the ability to assess a situation and see that it's dangerous, and then naturally, naturally occurring hormones will fire up, and these hormones are set into motion. And as we respond almost immediately with a fight or flight response to protect ourselves. And in the same way, our anxiety can trigger this same fight or flight response, even when there is no real danger. This state can also lead to full-blown panic attacks. The American Psychiatric Association's DSM 4th edition defines a panic attack as this. A discrete period of intense fear or discomfort in which four or more of the following symptoms developed abruptly and reached a peak within 10 minutes. And I'll read through these. Palpitations, pounding heart or accelerated heart rate, sweating, trembling or shaking, sensations or shortness of breath, the feeling of choking, chest pain or discomfort, nausea or abdominal distress, feeling dizzy, unsteady, lightheaded or faint, derealization, that's feelings of unreality or depersonalization, being detached from oneself, a fear of losing control or going crazy, a fear of dying, uh, paresthesia, which is numbness or tingling sensations, chills or hot flashes, end quote. It was so interesting to me in learning as I was studying about studying the Scripture, which we will get to because that is the answer, and studying anxiety to learn this. The antonym, that means the opposite for those of y'all that grew up like I did and didn't pay attention in school. Uh, the antonym for anxiety is unconcern. A lack of care or interest. So with all this in mind, it's my intent this morning to bring hope to all of us from God's Word as it concerns how to handle anxieties in this life using Psalm 27 as a guide. So now before we read together, let me provide some context for this psalm. Uh, this psalm was written by King David in the time recorded for us in 1, Samuel's chapter, 1 Samuel chapters 24 through 25. Right in there. So just make that note. Go back and review that this week. This is after, Saul, after David had been anointed to be king, but he was not yet king. And the king, Saul, was in hot pursuit of David to kill him. This is the time when David pretended to be crazy before the king of Gath. Um, and he mindlessly scribbled all over doors. And he was slobbering literally all over himself trying to look like he was nuts. David was on the run, and he and his men were hiding in the wilderness, they were hiding in the mountains, and they were hiding in the caves. I mean, if there was ever a person who had a realistic reason for the fight or flight situation, for the amygdala to kick in, or as I say it, the amygdala, that's a southern pronunciation. You, Todd can come pronounce me, or correct me on that pronunciation later. But if there's anybody ever had the reason for that to be going on in their life, who was? It was David, wasn't it? He was in a true fight or flight situation. And with that, let's go to Psalm 27. I'm preaching from the NASB this morning, so you can follow along with me as I read the 27th Psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? 
When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Amen. The overarching question I want us to consider this morning is this. In what, where, or who did David put his focus, his faith, and trust in during the midst of his anxieties and fears? And from this answer, we will then know what, where, or who we should put our focus in the midst of our sufferings and our trials. Does that make sense? So let's go to the text. As we examine verses 1 through 3, let me ask this question. What did David know that we need to know this morning? First in verse 1, David knew this, that the Lord was his light. There are so many meanings in Scripture for the word light. Uh, that which is contrasted to darkness, it means guidance, it means health, life, prosperity, enlightened judgment. Psalm 18, 28 says, For you light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. Micah 7, 8 proclaims, Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Do you understand this morning that there is no darkness to the Lord, and there is no darkness in the Lord? 1 John 1.5 states it so clearly, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. He can have nothing to do with darkness. Second, David knew the Lord was his salvation. His salvation, his help, his deliverance, his Savior. He knew that it was the Lord that preserved him from harm. In Exodus 15.2, after the Lord has parted the Red Sea and has delivered all of Israel through the Red Sea, the Egyptians are pursuing, aren't they? And they're coming through the Red Sea as well. I mean, they say, hey, it's open, let's roll, let's go get them. And it says in the Scriptures that the Lord caused confusion to the Egyptians as they were crossing, even going so far as to cause the wheels of their chariots to swerve. He physically caused the wheels of the chariots to swerve so they could not escape before He, the Lord, swallowed every one of them up. 
The Bible says this, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sing to the Lord. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. The psalmist says in Psalm 118.14, The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Isaiah 33.2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning. Our salvation also in time of distress. And you have to get this. You have to see this. It's not just that the Lord gives light and the Lord gives salvation. The Bible says that the Lord is light. The Lord is salvation. And then David goes on to proclaim the Lord is the defense of my life. The defense of my life. Other translations render this strong defense or stronghold. These are all referring to the literal meaning. This is, he is a place of refuge. He is a literal fortress for the believer. And then after David sets his mind firmly on who the Lord is, he does exactly what God tells Israel over and over and over in the Old Testament. He remembers. He remembers. And we must remember. Because in verse 2, David draws on God's faithfulness in his past as he reminds himself, when evildoers came upon him to devour his flesh, what happened? They stumbled and fell. Much like the Egyptians' chariot wheels that couldn't even go straight. These enemies that were coming after David, literally commentators, they were cannibals. They literally wanted to eat and devour his flesh. The Lord caused them to not even be able to keep their balance. They couldn't even keep their legs underneath them. And so he's reminding himself of the past. He now, he now thinks of the future. And in verse 3 he says this, that in the future, the unknown battles, the future enemies, he writes, though a host encamp against me, and though war rise against me, in spite of this, David says, my heart will not fear. In other words, his heart will not dread. I shall be confident. And we must get this. If you are here this morning and you belong to Christ, then Yahweh, the Lord of all, is our very light. He is our very salvation. He is our very strong defense. And He is why we need not fear. Evildoers, adversaries, enemies, hosts encamped against us, war, and even in our day and time, Satan and his world system with all the lies being propagated in our day and time of deconstructionism, CRT, social justice, LGBTQ+, all the lies that are being propagated, He is our defender through all of that. So we too can cry out, the Lord is for me, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So to reiterate the question for us this morning, when darkness comes upon us, when life brings trials, when suffering comes, when we are anxious, where are we putting our confidence? Are we putting it in ourselves? Are we putting it in wealth, in health, in family, or friends? Where are we putting our confidence? In order to think rightly when anxiety comes upon us in this life, we must understand who the object of our faith is. The Sovereign Lord. I know I'm just hammering this, but we've got to get this. We must believe this, and we must trust in this. A.W. Tozer was right when he wrote the following as the very first sentence in his book on the attributes of God entitled, 
Knowledge of the Holy. If you have not read it, get it and read it. I'm sure we have it in the bookstore. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And here are just some of the attributes that we know to be true about our triune God. Now get it, this is not what He has. This is what God is. He is eternal, meaning He has no beginning and no end. He is immutable, meaning He never changes. He is omniscient, meaning He is all-knowing. He is omnisapient, meaning He is all-wise. He is omnipotent, meaning He is all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. The Lord is faithful. He is good. He is just. He is mercy. He is grace. He is love. He is holy. And He is sovereign. There are no plans of the Lord that can be thwarted. This is our God. And I could go on and on this morning of the truthfulness of the statement that the Lord, Yahweh, is indeed, for all of us who belong to Him, our light, our salvation, and our strong defense. Like David, this is who we must put our confidence in. Yet there are certainly, most certainly, some here this morning that do not have this confidence. There are some here this morning that have never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And as such, God is not your light. He is not your salvation, and He is not your strong defense. But you can change that. If you repent and believe in the gospel, and you put your faith in Christ, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was crucified on a cross as a substitutionary atonement for the sins of all who will come to Him. And He was buried in the grave and for three days, and then was resurrected by the power of God, conquering sin and death forevermore. So the question for you, unbeliever, this morning is the same. Who do you put your confidence in? The Bible says there is only one name by which you can be saved, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have any questions about salvation and the gospel, please find myself or another elder up front after this service is over. We would love to talk to you. Now, after all that David declares concerning the Lord, does he just move on to his needs? Since he has all this out of the way of who God is and remembering and thinking ahead, what does he do? And I have to confess to you, I was so convicted this week of how guilty I am in prayer to offer up praise to the Lord and then so easily and quickly move to needs. Yet David, in the midst of his troubles and his trials, in the midst of being pursued by the king, banished from his home, living in caves, running for his very life, he could have, and I, I dare say we would have expected David to ask many things of the Lord, wouldn't we? I mean, how about physical safety for one? Lord, just don't let the king kill me. Uh, how about the throne that had already been uh, promised to him and he'd already been anointed for? Well, how about, Lord, why don't you just take Saul out so I can have that throne? Or maybe just some basic provisions. I mean, he knew that God could give manna and give water from a rock, didn't he? I mean, so maybe he would just ask for that for he and his men. Yet, what does David ask in verses 4 through 6? He says this, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Let's notice a few points here. In verse 4, David asked, yet he also seeks. How often do we go to the Lord in prayer asking of the Lord, yet we are guilty of not actually seeking the Lord? 
And David was not active, or excuse me, David was active, he was not passive. He was active and not passive in his pursuit of the desires in the Lord. And he asked that he dwell in the house of the Lord all of his days of his life. Now he was in the cave, he was in the wilderness, and that was his desire. But for what reasons did he desire to dwell in the house of the Lord? Well, first, it was to behold the beauty of the Lord. The, the literal meaning of beauty there is the delightfulness of the Lord. He had so much on him that his greatest desire was first to behold the beauty of the Lord in the house of the Lord. And second, his desire was to meditate or to inquire in his temple. So my question is this, when you and I come to this building as God's called out ones, those that he's saved by his blood and redeemed for his purposes, how often are we actively seeking to behold the beauty and the delightfulness of the Lord? How often are we coming here to meditate on him? How often do we come to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just to behold the beauty of him, the beauty of the king and meditate on him, to inquire of him? If, see, if we're primarily concerned with the one thing of verse 4, as David was, then when we look around at our troubles, we will see them as David did. We will also be able to process our troubles in this life with the same certainty David does when he states, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Life is going on all around us. And because we live in a sin-filled world, there are troubles literally on every side. There's political, social, economic unrest, upheaval, and uncertainty. And life today is so busy with so many things to be doing. We've got social media, video games, so much entertainment, and shiny things that call out to us. And yet, while it's needed so desperately, we fail to behold and meditate on the one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. As I was kind of meditating on this truth and, and being before the Lord in this scripture to prepare for this sermon, I was reminded of the passage in Luke 10, 38 through 42. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll just read it to you. And this is where Christ goes to the home of Martha, as you'll recall. And the Bible says, now as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Our anxieties tempt us to be distracted from the one thing. Yet it's our focus on the one thing, the Lord and his word, that bring about the resulting assurances that David writes for us in verses 5 and 6. His assurances are this, for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the sacred, secret place of his tent he will hide me. He's literally saying in the tabernacle the secret place was the Holy of Holies. Where guess what, you went in one time a year and if it wasn't done right, they had a rope tied to your ankle because you would die and they would have to pull you out. And David's assurances are such that he knows that God's actually going to hide him in that place. And then he says, he will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. See, they would set their camps up on rocks as high as they could get up so that they could see around. And that way when enemies would attack, they could see them coming. And what David's saying is, you will lift me up 
on your rock, and you will let me see all my enemies, and my head will be lifted up around me. And these assurances are what bring about the resulting effects in the rest of verse 6, where David says, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of what? Joy. With shouts of joy, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. David responds to the surety and security God provides with promises to offer sacrifices and shouts of joy that result in singing. Singing praises to the Lord. That's why we sing praises to the Lord. We are just returning back to Him because of the surety that He gives us. And as the singing is still ringing and the praise is still pouring out from David's lips, we're brought to our third point this morning. As David turns quickly from using his voice to sing praises and make music to the Lord to using his voice to cry out in prayer. Spurgeon, who is my go-to, I won't read any Spurgeon until I've actually prepared my own teaching and preaching because once I read him, I feel like, well, I might as well just read his sermon, <laughs> which happens all the time. But Spurgeon said this, the pendulum of spirituality swings from prayer to praise. You get that? For believers, the pendulum of spirituality swings from prayer to praise. And we so clearly see this as David now cries out as we read in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. David cries out for the Lord to hear him, to be gracious to him, to answer him. And what I want us to see this morning is that the Lord's answer to David is the Lord's answer to us. In verse 8, the Lord says, seek my face. When David cries out, the Lord says, seek my face. Uh, John Calvin is so helpful here in his commentary on this psalm where he says this, quote, the term face is commonly explained to mean help or succor. Succor, for my brother, because I had to look it up, means aid, relief in time of distress. Calvin goes on to say, as if it had been said, seek me. In essence, the Lord says to David, the Lord says to us, seek me. I am the answer. And David from his heart immediately responds, as I pray that we would as well, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. And in his crying out, David says this, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. And for assurances of the fact that God will not hide his face from David, will not turn away from him or abandon him, but that in fact God is his help and that God is his salvation, David uses the comparison of God's faithfulness to that of the love of a father and mother in verse 10 when he writes, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. And what a comparison he is making. David is not saying here that he was forsaken by his father and mother. What he is comparing is that the relationship, or the relation to the most tender and loving relationships in the world on human terms, which should be offered by a father and a mother, that of that loving father and mother, that they would be more prone to forsake their own child than that the Lord would be a forsaking David. The Lord will not forsake any of us that belong to him through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the King James when it says, we're unpluckable. We cannot be plucked. If we are the Lord's through Christ, we are unpluckable. We are clearly told in Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget 
but I will not forget you. The Lord is saying in relation to my love and my care and my devotion to you, a nursing mother will forget her own child before I will forget you. And then David goes on to pray. Yeah, that's a wow, isn't it, Vicky? That's just amazing wow. In verse 11, he says this, teach me your way, O Lord. In other words, make me know your ways and lead me in a level path. That level path is God's principles revealed to us in his words. He says, because of my foes, the people were out to get him. He says, do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. They wanted to kill David. For false witnesses have risen against me. David was being slandered. I'm just bringing about all those things going on that happened to us in this life were happening to David. And as such breathe out violence, there was threats of physical harm. And again, in all of these requests, what is it that David is clinging to? We find out in verse 13. He says, I would have despaired. King James has fainted. I would have fainted. The new king says, lost heart. Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, I want to do a little teaching right here. Uh, the ESV translates it, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I know a lot of people in our congregation use the ESV. Yet that does not convey what David actually says here or the true emotion of his statement. You'll see if you have the NASB uh, that that phrase, I would have despaired, is in italics. Okay? And what that means is not in the original text. It was placed there by the translators to help give understanding to what the text actually says. This is what I call, and I'm guilty of this if you ever email or text with me, uh, what I call a dot, dot, dot statement. It's like an utterance of thought. Um, David expressing the reality of where he would be without belief in the seeing the goodness of the Lord. And it's kind of like he's just actually, unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's, it's just that statement right there. And in my mind's eye, there's space before and there's space after it. And he's just sitting in that for a second. Calvin explains it this way. Had I not relied on the promise of God and been assuredly persuaded that he would safely preserve me, and had I not continued firm in this persuasion, I had utterly perished. There was no other remedy. Calvin goes on to say in his commentary, David then believed that he would still enjoy the goodness of God in this world, although he was now deprived of all experience of his favor and could see no spark of light. And I love how Spurgeon goes on to unpack this for my own heart, and I hope it's helpful to you. Spurgeon says this, we must believe to see, not see to believe. And we should never have known true refreshment, nor enjoyed the comforts of the Lord, but should we have been full of doubts and distracted with fears if we had not learned the sacred art of believing, although we did not see, or even believing in spite of what we did see, or believing in order that we might see, fully expecting that sight would inevitably follow if our faith were but simple and true. You see, David believed in order to see, even when he could not see. And this is what we must do when we cannot see. We are praying for loved ones yet to be saved, aren't we? We are, uh, have hardships yet to be alleviated. We have marriages on the brink of divorce. We need strength to bear up under trials and sufferings. We have fears and anxieties that have not abated. Bodies are failing, 
and we see the lies of the spirit of the age wreaking havoc on those that we love. We haven't seen yet, but we must believe so that we can see. And so listen to the promise. Because David's belief, this is so sweet as I study this, David's belief was not just in the goodness of the Lord as it relates to our heavenly home. We have that great expectation, but I was thrilled to learn in studying this text that the text says in the land of the living. That's here on this earth. We will see the goodness of the Lord on this earth in the land of the living. Even amongst all that's going on that shows us that the spirit of the age has controlled this world, God gave that to him. Psalm 8411, which Adam loves to quote, says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We must believe in order to see. And then David closes out this psalm with a sweet encouragement and reminder. He says in verse 14, wait for the Lord. Uh, other translations read that, hope in the Lord. Rely on the Lord. It's literally saying look forward to the Lord. Look forward to what the Lord will do. And then David is so encouraging, he says, be strong. We need to be strong. We need to let our hearts take courage. And then David proclaims again, yes, wait for the Lord. Our hope needs to be in the Lord. That needs to be our focus of faith in the midst of anxiety and fears in this world. It is a fact that because we live in a fallen world, this life has troubles. Is that true? It's absolutely true. There is so much suffering and so many situations that will cause fear and bring about anxieties. And I want to encourage you with a sweet truth that a loving triune God knows full well our propensity to be fearful and our propensity to be anxious. Did you realize there are over 300 passages in Scripture that say, do not fear? Does that not sound like a God that knows our hearts, that knows we're fearful? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commands six times in just nine verses, do not worry. And I want to relieve some pressure for all of us as I try to land this plane this morning. Understand that we are not looking for an anxiety-free life. For that would mean we would have a life of indifference and unconcern for anyone or anything. So we don't want an anxiety-free life. Even Paul experienced anxiety in his care for others in the church. You can read this in Philippians 2, 25 through 28. And 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 just succinctly says this. Paul writes, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. We don't want an anxiety-free life. We want to know how to handle the anxieties of life. So I just want to close out with some practical helps. What should you do? What should I do amid great anxiety? First, from a spiritual perspective, we must think rightly. We must think rightly. Romans 12, 2. We are to be, quote, transformed by the renewing of our minds. You must start your day with Scripture, the truths of Scripture. You must think rightly about, about God, about His attributes. Get that book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Read that. It is so helpful to understand, as best we can, because He's incomprehensible, God and His attributes. Fill your day with truthful songs. Begin with it, fill it, and end it. Uh, one of the songs that I played for Kelly on a regular basis at night, just to help Try to go to sleep was City of Light's song called The Night Song. Uh, get, get a good pair of headsets. 
be able to focus and meditate on the Lord through music. Get a journal. Uh, some people call it a gratefulness journal. I'm a journaler. Write out your prayers. Write out your concerns. Write out your praises. Write out your truths. All this to help yourself think rightly. The second thing is you need to care for your physical body. Remember, God has linked our minds and our bodies in a way that is just really incomprehensible. And so you need to find a doctor who can help you with nutrition and correct supplements and properly analyze your situation. And I would add, not that it ever happened at our home, stay off the internet. Get a good doctor, listen to them. Get a physical or other test if needed for assurances. We had to make sure there wasn't nothing, anything physically wrong. Because you heard all the things about a panic attack, that all seems like a heart attack. And it's real. And so get a physical, make sure your body is okay. Exercise, get some sun, even just a stroll. You, you have to get out. Third, do not isolate yourself. You will want to isolate yourself, but don't do it. Do not stop coming to your church. Do not stop going to your life group. You need to be with fellow believers who can love you, support you, and pray for you. Have an advocate. Have an advocate. Someone to go with you to the doctor's appointments, someone to remind you of what was said, and someone to remind you of truth. One of my roles to love my wife through this over eight months was that I had to so gently and tenderly and often remind her to put off lies, to renew her mind with truth, and to put on truth. That was really my role. Here's what the doctor said. Here's what the other doctor said. Here's what the Bible says. This is what we must believe. Because in the midst of it, she needed to be reminded of that. That's a huge part of thinking rightly, of as the Bible says, taking every thought captive to Christ. And lastly, and most importantly, as a practical help, you need to remember who you belong to. You belong to the Lord. This is life is not our home. This earthly tent is being torn down. And we will pass from life to life if we're in Christ Jesus. And that's a praise. Romans 8 clearly tells us this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? I am learning more and more. I'm just 53, which is old to some and young to others. Amen, Jerry? Young to some people. But I'm learning more and more that no matter the fear, no matter the trial, no matter the struggle or situation in life, and no matter the sin, even if it be enslaving or besetting, the solution is the same. We're to believe on, meditate on, hope in, and consider the beauty of the Lord. We're to wash at the cross, walk with the Spirit, and by His strength, war with the flesh. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is perfect. Lord, Your Word is a balm. It is salve to our souls. We praise You that You love us. Lord Jesus, we praise You that You were our substitutionary atonement. 
Lord, that your blood applied to those of us that belong to you, Lord, has redeemed us. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, as we have anxieties and worries and fears because we live in a sin-filled world, Lord, that we would all be reminded to think on you. And not just think on you, but to think on you rightly. And in thinking on you rightly, Lord, that we would truly have a reverential fear for the Creator and not a worldly fear of what you've created. In Christ's name, amen.